0: On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue.
1: Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear. Editor at large at the Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by University of Ottawa Professor Thomas Junot, who's just edited a new book entitled "Middle Power in the Middle East: Canada's Foreign and Defense Policies in a Changing Region." Thomas, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book.
2: Thanks, and thanks for having me.
1: In your introduction to the essay collection, you and Besma Momani, your co-author, your co-editor, rather. Argue that while the Middle East is not a quote, first order priority for Canada, we also cannot afford to retreat and ignore it. Let me ask you a two part question. One, why has it not been a priority in your view? And two, why would it be a mistake to withdraw attention and resources from the region?
2: So you actually framed that question very well. So the Middle East is not a first-order priority for Canada in terms of our foreign and defence policy. It's not today, and it never was, and arguably it never really will be. Our first-order priorities for our foreign and defence policy, this has been bipartisan under both liberal and conservative governments, and it's not original to say this at all, it's managing the relationship with the United States. By far and away, that's the most important foreign policy priority. Arguably, after that, you have NATO. You have our relations with other liberal democracies in Europe or in Australia. You have the Five Eyes. Now, increasingly, you have our relationship on the more adversarial side with China? Where does the Middle East rank in terms of all that? In terms of the rhetoric, in terms of media attention, the Middle East is always there. So if you only look at the surface, you might think that the Middle East is actually really important for our foreign policy because we've had a lot of foreign policy deployments, military deployments. We've had a lot of you know, media attention, successive wars and crises in the region. But if you take a step back and look at the substance of our foreign policy, if you look at our actual national interests it's not a first-order priority. And and depending on how you define second and third-order priorities, it's either of those. I would actually say a third-order one after the US and then after Europe, other democracies, the Five Eyes and China, and then you have the Middle East. That being said, To answer the second part of your question, that doesn't mean that it's not a priority. There are still important things that happen in the Middle East that affect Canada. It affects Canada for domestic reasons. We have diaspora communities in particular that have a keen interest in what happens in the region. That means that we cannot completely ignore it. And again, what happens in Syria, what happens in Iraq, what happens in Lebanon in particular will also affect us. So it's not a first order priority, but it's also not a region that we can ignore.
1: It's somewhere in the middle. I'll come more deeply to the book in a minute, but if we can just stay on the topic of thinking about Canadian foreign policy priorities, it's often argued, Thomas, that other middle powers have done a better job of prioritizing their attention and resources than Canada. I think, for instance, of Australia, which seems to have fewer global priorities than we do, but is a bigger player in its own region. What do you think of that characterization? And is it something that Canadian policymakers ought to be thinking about? Or are there reasons that such an approach wouldn't work for us? I think the
2: answer is both. Uh, Yes, absolutely, Canada. And again, successive governments have not been very much able to articulate clear, ranked foreign policy priorities. That being said, I think that's largely the case as a result of our geography. We live alone in North America. Everyone agrees, even though we don't always say it that clearly, everyone agrees or should agree that managing the relationship with the U.S. is by far and away the most important priority. Ultimately, everything else ranks beyond that. Everything else has a more limited impact. If the U.S. decides to play nasty on us, it really hurts us. Other countries, increasingly China, but even then, not even close. So when it comes to this never-ending debate on Canada articulating a foreign policy strategy, pundits love to talk about that. A lot of my academic colleagues love to talk about that. It's actually hard. Because beyond the U.S., it's not easy to articulate clear foreign policy priorities. Look at Africa or the Middle East or Latin America. What's our interest in these regions? It's not clear. It's a limited interest, but it's diffuse. It's vague. And in many cases, what we do in these regions is much more a matter of choice than it's a matter of necessity. And when you're in the realm of foreign policy choice, articulating interest is much more difficult than when you're in the realm of necessity, when the interest is actually clear. So... Ultimately, I think the answer to your question is no, we haven't done a very good job at articulating priorities. Yes, we should try to make a better effort at doing it, but keeping in mind that there's no easy answer.
1: What would the U.S. think if Canada rationalized its global focus? Would it welcome such an approach or do the Americans prefer to have us broadly engaged, even if the result is that it's constrained by limits on our attention and resources?
2: That's a difficult question to answer for a number of reasons. A, I think What Canada does is is not a major priority for the U.S., right? If you actually did go to the U.S. and interview foreign policy officials, which is something that that I did for a book that we were actually on your show to talk about about a year ago with Stephanie Carvin, our book on the intelligence side, we actually did go to the U.S. and ask about this. It really depends who you talk to at the political level, at the bureaucratic level, at the foreign or defense policy side. So there's no uniform answer to your question. Generally speaking, I think the answer would have to include that on the American side, there would be a willingness to see Canada increase its share of GDP to defense, to increase its foreign policy capacity in general, its national security and intelligence capacity in general. So there would be a willingness for Canada to do more in support of U.S. or NATO or Western foreign policy priorities. There is also, and you, you can, you, if you scratch the surface a bit, you can hear this. There's also a bit of a frustration in the U.S., but also here in the country, at the tradition in Canada to sprinkle our foreign and defense policy all over the world, to basically be able to say we're showing the flag in Cameroon and in Uruguay and in in Lebanon and, and in Cambodia and, and individually all of these countries that for which you can make a case that they matter. But ultimately, because of a lack of resources, we're spread way too thin. So from an American perspective, yeah, I think you could say that. There would be an interest, not just a willingness, in seeing a close ally like Canada be better focused. But again, it comes back to your previous question that how you do that is easier said than done.
1: Well, let me put that to you. Um, If we were to move in such a direction, which parts of the world should we focus our attention and resources and, and why? Well, By far
2: and away, the most important interest for Canada is managing the relationship with the U.S. And to some extent, everything else is secondary and even tertiary pretty easily because it is by so much our most important interests, especially in the current context where there is instability in the U.S., there's uncertainty in the U.S., there's growing polarization in the U.S. What happens if Trump or a like-minded Republican comes back to power in just over two years and threatens to withdraw the U.S. from NATO? That is not a theoretical or far-fetched possibility. That's actually a very concrete scenario. NATO is one of the pillars of our foreign and defense policy. What do we do? So the answer to that is not clear to my mind, but we definitely need to think a lot more about that in this country. After the U.S., in terms of regional focus, it definitely has to be the Indo-Pacific. In terms of building relations with democracies and like-minded states over there, Japan, South Korea, India, easier said than done, but a lot of scope for, for improvement at that level, And better learning to manage and contain the rivalry with China. China is engaged in massive economic espionage operations here, massive cyber attacks, foreign interference, electoral interference, pressure on the Chinese diaspora here in Canada. We and these, in a way, are foreign policy issues, even if they touch on domestic security issues. We need to better equip ourselves to deal with that. Once you've done the US, once you've done the Indo-Pacific, realistically, there's not a lot of bandwidth left. Should the Middle East occupy a portion of that limited bandwidth? Yes, I think it should. But by then, there's not that much left.
1: Well, thanks, Thomas, for indulging me on some of those big picture questions. Let's get to the book now. How much is the modern history of Canadian policy vis-a-vis the Middle East a story of continuity or a story of change? What are some of the key ways in which Canadian policy has evolved and changed over the course of the period covered by the book?
2: There's been a lot of continuity in terms of Canadian foreign policy in the Middle East. And we largely focus the book in the the last 10, 12 years, especially since 2011, the Arab uprisings and so on. We touch a bit on the area before, but not much. So we touch on both the Harper and Trudeau uh, governments. There's been a lot of continuity. In both cases, the Middle East has not been a priority right there's been different rhetoric between the two governments but it has not been a major priority in both cases the relationship with israel has been very close the tone of the rhetoric with israel has changed a bit the liberals have been less warm less vocal about their support for israel but if you actually look at the substance of canada's relations with israel it has not changed a lot before and after 2015 even our relationship with iran there's been a fair bit of talk about that Yes, in terms of their rhetoric and some of their actions, the Harper uh, administration, the Harper government was much more aggressive in its opposition to Iran. The liberals did try to reopen embassies. That's true. That's a difference. But A, they failed. So ultimately, we're still pretty much at the same point. No embassies. And B, beyond the issue of embassies, which is only a small part, even though it gets a a fair bit of media attention, it's only a small part of relations. The liberals remain broadly committed to the U.S.-led Western approach of containing and opposing an aggressive Islamic Republic of Iran. Fundamentally, that has not changed, even if some of the rhetoric and some of the style has changed. The Gulf. This is one area where there's been a bit of change. And by the Gulf, I mean the Arab states on the southern shore of the Persian Gulf, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar. The Harper government, especially in its latter years, put a fair bit of energy to bring Canada closer To the UAE, Saudi Arabia. The liberal government, when it came in 2015, was less interested. So, in this case, it's not only the tone that cooled down a bit, but it's also the investment. It was limited on the Harper side, but on the Trudeau side, it decreased in terms of its intensity, not just the warmth of the tone. And then you had the dispute with Saudi Arabia in 2018, which led relations not only with Saudi Arabia, but to a lesser extent, some of its neighbors to get into a bit of a freeze. So, in that case, you do have a bit more of a difference. But even then, it shouldn't be exaggerated because, yes, relations were warmer under Harper, but they were still marginal. I mean, our trade with Saudi Arabia was between three and four billion dollars per year before the 2018 dispute. That's tiny. That's one day of trade with the U.S. One day. So to say that things have actually changed is not inaccurate, but in the bigger picture is is not very important.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca thehub.ca. Now back to our program.
1: I'll come back to the Gulf states in a minute. But before I do, more than 20 years after 9-11, it seems somewhat surprising in hindsight that the Islamic terrorist threat was, was not bigger and that the Bush administration's global war on terror was not more protracted. Why do you think that's the case? What happened and what have been the consequences? That's an interesting question. If, if we had written this book 12 years ago, in 2010, I think
2: you, and I'm, I'm guessing here, but I'm, I can speculate that there might have been a more of a focus on terrorism because in the, the decade of the 2000s, because of Afghanistan, because of what was going on in Iraq, Al Qaeda was on everybody's minds. That would have been more prominent. Today, 2022, when we worked on the book, this is an academic book, right? So it, the work happened from basically 2019 to 21. But today when we think about the Middle East from a Canadian foreign and defense policy perspective, al-Qaeda is still a threat. Al-Qaeda has not disappeared. The Islamic state same thing. But when we collectively think about the Middle East, it's one issue among many others in a way that is more diluted than it would have been if we had done a book like this throughout the 2010s. Even in terms of our for- of our defense policy in the region, we have one chapter in the book, a really good chapter by Nizar Mohammed and Mike Fleet on capacity building by the Canadian forces in the region, in the Palestinian territories, in Jordan, Lebanon, and Iraq. A good chunk of the, the Canadian forces' capacity building efforts in the region aims to support regional militaries in their fight against terrorism. But it's really not the only reason that we're there. Small parenthesis, we could definitely criticize the government, the current one, but also the previous one, for not being transparent enough in explaining to Canadians why we're there. Why are the Canadian forces training the Jordanian or Iraqi or Palestinian militaries or security forces? But clearly, it's not the only reason. Look at Iraq. What is the main threat to the Canadian forces' presence in Iraq right now? It is not the Islamic State anymore, even if that is the original reason why we deployed there. It's Iran-backed Shia militias in Iraq. So that example kind of illustrates how, Our activities in the region at the defense policy level, but at the foreign policy level too, have really diversified from the Al-Qaeda and Islamic State threats, which are still there, but are not the only thing on our radar.
1: How do recent agreements between Israel and some of its neighboring Arab states, including current reports of negotiations with Saudi Arabia and Egypt, change the Middle East's fundamental geopolitical dynamics? Are we witnessing something of an historic shift? And what, what does it mean for Canada?
2: As a good Canadian, I kind of come in the middle on what we call the Abraham Accords. Uh, You know, on the one side, you have critics who say it's not very important. It's not good for the Palestinians. On the other side, you have supporters who say it's a huge deal. It's a historic shift. I'm kind of in the middle. It's a big deal. I mean, this is an important shift in in Middle Eastern geopolitics to have Israel now formally have relations with four Arab states, Morocco, Sudan, Bahrain, and the UAE, maybe Saudi Arabia, Honestly, I don't think it's going to reach a formal point anytime soon, but informally, there is definitely a rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. That's a big deal, and and we can't deny that. It's a security relationship, but it's more than that. It's a diplomatic relationship. It's a tourism relationship, which is developing quite a bit. This would have been unimaginable just a few years ago. It's a trade relationship. Yes, it's a trade relationship on the security side, because as we've seen somewhat critically in many cases, there's a lot of trade of security and defense technologies. But not only that, green technologies, agricultural technologies and other aspects, a lot of that is a good thing. I wouldn't go so far as calling it a historical tectonic shift because we're not quite at that level, but it's real and a lot of it is positive. Some of it is also negative. Yes, the Palestinians are being thrown under the bus by these deals. Right? Because part of the agreement uh, between the Palestinians and Arab states was no recognition until the Palestinians have a state. There is recognition of Israel by four and implicitly more than four Arab states. Does that cost the Palestinians leverage? Does it punt further in the future some kind of resolution of the tragedy of, of their lives? Yes. There might be a counter argument that the stabilization of relations between Israel and Arab states actually, by decreasing Israeli threat perceptions, Opens the door for a resolution of that issue. And that is plausible. I absolutely reject those who dismiss that argument, but I'm not seeing it for now. So are we going to see that in the future? I hope so, but we're not seeing it now. So overall, it is a nuanced take, but but I come on the side that it it is a positive in, in many ways. What does it mean for Canada? A, not that much, to be honest, because, again, going back to the initial point in our discussion, the Middle East is not a first-order priority for Canada. So this is not or does not rank in terms of first-order consequences. Overall, if it's good for stability in the Middle East, if it's good for trade in the region, it is good for Canada. Our trade with the region is very low. It has never been high. If this can open up opportunities for Canadian businesses to, to take advantage of that certain stabilization between some countries... That's a good thing. But ultimately, it it does remain limited.
1: The book contains essays from a number of young and -and up-and-coming foreign policy scholars. Tomas, it reminded me of a 2020 Globe and Mail column by John Ibbotson in which he outlined the rise of a new set of foreign policy realists in the world of Canadian academia who rejected what he described as, quote, the Pearsonian platitudes that still dominate Canadian foreign policy. What do you think of that characterization? Is there something of a change occurring among Canadian foreign policy scholars and If so, what explains it?
2: Uh, that's an interesting question too. Uh, I I agree with what uh, uh, Ibizen wrote in that column. As a as a realist myself, I I, I obviously appreciated the uh, the 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 shout out. I think it's it's true, but it's not universal. There's a, a, a significant elements of of the younger generation. By younger, depending how you define them, is it under forty? That excludes me. Is it under fifty? Then I'm good. It, you know, some of them are realists, and that's true. And I think it, there's a case to be made more of them than in the past. Linking it to the book, uh, we made a an effort, which was an easy effort, uh, to be to be clear. To have a very diverse set of contributors, we wanted new voices, people who had not been heard on these issues before. We wanted uh, diverse voices in terms of ideology. So we have people who would not consider themselves as realist in this book, to be very clear, but some people who would, myself included. But we wanted that diversity of, of perspectives. Ultimately, what we wanted with this book, beyond the issue of having a diversity of perspectives, was which I think we got, just having a book on Canada-Middle East relations. The last book on this issue came out 15 years ago, co-edited by Besmam Mamomani, my co-editor for this book, and, and Paul Becker, a retired diplomat. That was a good book, but that was 15 years ago. So we were really trying to fill an important gap here.
1: I'll ask you about one of your contributors when we wrap up. But before we do, let me just ask you a penultimate question. Uh, We're speaking on May 24th. And as uh, the head of a member, rather, of a task force established at the University of Ottawa's Graduate School of Public and International Affairs on national security, you've just released a major report on Canadian and national Security issues and it sets out a, a series of recommendations. I won't name all of the members of the task Force, but it's an impressive collection of academics and people who've been involved in Canada's national security establishment, including um, people like Dick Fadden, Daniel Jean. Roland Paris, Nadia Saman, and others. Why don't you just paint a bit of a picture for listeners who probably haven't had a chance to to read the report at this point, but will when this uh, podcast eventually is released, on some of the key insights and recommendations in the task force report.
2: So this task force, which I co-led with Vincent Rigby, who very recently retired as National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister on the public service side. He was a, a civil servant, not on the political side. We brought together a dozen people, former directors of CSIS, other former national security advisors, deputy ministers of foreign affairs and defense, everybody uh, involved in one way or another with the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at Ottawa U, where where I am. The basic idea is that, uh, and in a way, it touches on some of the issues we, we discussed uh, at the beginning of, of this podcast, which is Canada has benefited for decades from a secure position. We're a lucky country. We're surrounded by oceans. We have the U.S. to the south. Not always an easy relationship, but by and large, we've massively benefited in terms of security and prosperity. This is all good. We're not saying that the end of the world is right around the corner, but there's a growing number of threats. Uh, the rise of China, Russia, as we can see in Ukraine, Islamic terrorism is still there. The rise of right-wing extremism, uh, climate change, which will impact us in multiple ways, including at the security level, etc., etc., etc. That calls for a bit of a wake-up call. We've neglected security issues because we could, but we think that will be increasingly difficult. And Canada really has a tradition of being reactive on national security issues. We do something either when it's too late or once we've been hit by something. To some extent, that's unavoidable, but we're hoping to contribute to what is really a limited debate in this country on national security issue issues by putting them uh, out there. And our, our goal, Roland Paris and I, in putting together this, this task force with Vincent Rigby and others was that the, the names involved would bring a bit of attention uh, to the issue. On that basis, we make 60 recommendations or about 60 recommendations, some of them very granular in terms of tools, um, you know, on information sharing, on modernizing the CSIS Act, uh, on transparency, on governance, and some of them at a much higher level, for example, in terms of something as basic as having a national security strategy, which we haven't had for almost 20 years. Some folks may agree with a lot, may disagree with some or a lot. That's perfectly fine. Ultimately, what we want as former bureaucrats, academics, nonpartisan people in every case, is to contribute to the discussion because we need
1: that. I mentioned, to I said I wanted to wrap up our conversation with a question about the contributors to the essay compilation on Canada's policy in the Middle East. One of the book's contributors and a colleague at the University of Ottawa, David Petrasek, passed away before the book's release. What was he like and what was his contribution to the advance of, of human rights?
2: So David Petrasek was a colleague of ours at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. Uh, genuinely one of the nicest human beings I've ever met in my life. When I started at the university, many times came to my office. You're a new professor. It's always a bit overwhelming. I uh, was extremely nice to me you know, talk about the job, how to do it and so on. David was very well known internationally on the human rights front, had, had worked as a practitioner uh, for a long time with Amnesty International, with the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue, with others, before moving back to Canada, where he was from Canada, with his kids, to be able to, to live here uh, and, and teach, uh, was a great colleague, uh, very well respected, both on the academic side, on the practitioner side in the human rights world had published a lot uh, was was uh, present in the media david had been sick uh, before had recovered uh, wrote a, a very good chapter on on the place of human rights in canada's policies in the middle east an extremely good chapter uh, consistent with with other things he had said or written over the years but tragically between the time that he finished this chapter and the publication of the book uh, he passed away, so we we decided uh, to dedicate the book to his memory. And, and I remember when when we sent an email to the chapter contributors in the book, uh, suggesting this. Uh, of course, uh, the, the the support for the idea was was overwhelming. Uh, and the publishers, of course, had no no problem with this. So it's, it's still difficult to talk about it because we're still all, um, you know, I'm still not over it. But it just made sense to do this because this was an issue that he was uh, passionate about, that he was interested in.
1: Well, if listeners want to read Thomas and Besma's beautiful dedication to David and more importantly, David's insightful essay, they ought to read the new book entitled Middle Power in the Middle East, Canada's Foreign and Defense Policies in a Changing Region, Tomas Juno, you know, thank you so much for joining us at Hub
0: Dialogues.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.